Good morning. Welcome again. My name is Jeff Kerr. My wife, Christy, and I are the pastors here. If I haven't met you, I'd love to meet you after the service. I know we have some new faces for Easter Sunday. We are glad that you are with us. And if you would like more information about the church, as Stephen said, please just fill out one of those Connect cards. We promise to not bombard you with information. We won't put you on a, on a chain email list or try to sell you any essential oils or anything like that. We promise. We just would love to give you an opportunity to uh, get connected. We know it's hard at, at times if you're new to a church to know, well, who do I talk to about this? I'd love to know what else is going on. So that is your first step to fill out one of those connect cards and then we can make contact with you. Um, and if you fill out like a, an email, we'll shoot you an email. If you fill out a fake email and we don't hear from you, then we'll know you didn't want to hear from us. So that's just fine. You can do that. Um, I wanted to, as we start our sermon today, I wanted to read in the book of Matthew, the, the Gospel of Matthew account of the resurrection on Easter Sunday. So that's going to be up on the screen. I thought this would be a great way for us to start our message today. So if you have a Bible, it's in Matthew chapter 28. If not, the words will be up on the screen. Can we throw those up there on the screen? We're going to read Matthew chapter 28, verse 1 through 9. After the Sabbath, at the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and, going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning. His clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, which is totally understandable, afraid yet filled with joy and ran to tell the disciples. And suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. And they came to him, they clasped his feet, and they worshiped him. Let's pray together. Jesus, we celebrate you today, our risen Savior, our risen King. You did not stay in the grave. You rose through the power of God in you, conquering death, conquering sin, conquering the grave. And so today, I pray, Lord, as we look into your word, I pray that it would become real to us, that those who are in need of life, new life today, that they would find it in you. Those in need of hope, in peace, in any sort of restoration and healing would find it in you, the author of all of those things. We thank you for this day, and we celebrate the risen King in Jesus' name. Amen. We celebrate a risen Savior today. Amen? Somebody say amen. He is risen. This is a wonderful story, and I was thinking about it this week. This is more than a great comeback story. Maybe you've experienced this watching sports or something, and there's a great comeback story Maybe you watched Tiger Woods last week win the Masters after being like out of golf, unable to swing, you know, a cl golf club a year and a half before. This story today is more than a great comeback story. It's more than the story, you know, maybe you watch a movie, a great kind of comeback, the, the nerdy kid who was picked on in high school but eventually finds his true self and asks out the pretty cheerleader girl and they go to prom together and you're like, yay, come back, way to go. Okay. This is not one of those stories, okay? This is more than a comeback story. In fact, this isn't just a story. This isn't just like a fairy tale. This is the foundation of our faith. This is an event that took place that is the foundation of our faith. Everything that Jesus had taught was validated when he rose 
from the grave. The reason we have scripture written down, the reason there is a church, the reason the disciples went on after that day to preach the gospel was because Jesus rose from the grave. It validated everything that he taught and said. The Apostle Paul later on, you know, years after this, would write a letter to the group of Corinthians in, in the book of Corinthians in the Bible. And he would say this. He would say, you know what? We preach that Christ was crucified and he raised from the dead. And if he has not been raised from the dead, if Christ had not raised from the dead, then everything we do is in vain. There is no power over the grave. If he hasn't raised from the dead, there is no point to our preaching. If he hasn't been raised from the dead, then this world is all we've got. But Paul says, but thankfully he has risen from the dead. This is an event. This is hope for our life today. So I want to look at this resurrection event, what we read about in the Gospels. And if you're new to the Bible, the Gospels are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're the start of the New Testament. These are all written by four people who walked the earth the days that Jesus was there. Some were eyewitnesses, some were disciples, and they followed Jesus, and they saw all of these things firsthand. Some came along after the fact and said, I want to, I want to talk to all the eyewitnesses. So these gospel accounts are an account of the event of Jesus' resurrection. So I want to look at this a little bit different today, not just as a story, not just as something that's nice to hear on Easter Sunday, certainly not a fairy tale, but an event. So first, and you don't need to answer out loud, but do you believe it? Do you believe this story? And second, I ask this, why do you believe it? Why do you believe in the event of the resurrection? In fact, let's, let's look at it this way. If anything comes across your mind or any news that you hear or anything you hear, what helps you decide whether or not you will believe it as truth or not? Think about anything. You know, in this day and age, certainly with Facebook news feeds and social media, there's news, you know, quote-unquote news outlets that pop up and they say something, and my first response is, yeah, I'm not sure I believe that that's the truth. You know, if we wanted news... 30 years ago, we would turn on Tom Brokaw, and there was, you know, one of three guys who would tell us the news. Now we have news from everywhere. How do we know what, it, how do you decide what is real or what to believe? Well, you look at the source, or you look for some evidence. So if there's something you've heard is true, well, let me see some evidence, or let me consider the source of who is telling me. And I know this is true, and you know this is true because we do this more than just with news. We do this in our families, don't we? If you, have, if you hear, parents, if you hear something going down upstairs and the kids all come running downstairs and you say, okay, what happened? You know you have different levels of truth assigned to the various stories that you hear in that moment, don't you? Especially when they were early, younger, my kids would come down and I knew if there was somebody telling a version of the story, they didn't, they didn't have that level of credibility from the source. I just, I just knew it. Another example is this. I'm 45 years old. If you talk to any 40-something-year-old man and they're telling you stories of their great athletic achievements back in college or high school, that is not a reliable source, right? Those details get incredibly exaggerated because we have to exaggerate those details. When we're in our 40s, that's all we've got is exaggerated details of how good we used to be at something many, many years ago. We do this with our kids. My wife and I have certain times where we may or may not trust the details of a story. For example, if Christy takes the kids shopping and they go to the mall and they come back with all the bags of stuff and the topic of how much was all this comes up, that's not a reliable source after that. For example, Christy will say, I got all of this stuff for around $50. 
Okay, so I've, I've calculated it out after 21 years of marriage. Around $50 means that the very least she spent was $148, okay? That's just, I've done the math. There was one other time early in our marriage, I'm not, I was a little slow on the response with a telemarketer who was trying to, trying to sell me something, and as a lack of judgment on my part, we ended up having a salesman come to our house wanting to sell us a vacuum cleaner, okay? I learned my lesson the hard way early on in our marriage, and this vacuum cleaner salesman was telling us how toxic the air was in our house, how really unsafe it was for us to be raising kids with all the, the dust and the pollen and, the, and who knows what else is going in this carpet. And he basically was like, you know, the only way you're going to survive, you know, I'm paraphrasing, the only way you're going to survive is to buy this $2,000 vacuum. Now, did I have reason to be skeptical of this information about the dire state of the air of our house. Of course I did, because anytime I feel like somebody's trying to sell me something, I instantly get skeptical. I mean, you might be the same as me. Of course I'm not going to trust exactly what this guy says about the, the unhealthiness of the air in our house, because he wants to sell me a solution for only $2,000. So I was a little bit skeptical then as well. So what causes you to believe something if it's true or not? We look at the evidence, or we look at the sources and say, are they reliable? So what does this have to do with Easter today? What does this have to do with Easter? Well, maybe you're here today, and the story we just read is just that. It's a nice story. It's a nice story. Maybe you're here, and you are skeptical today of the little bit of this scripture. Maybe you're skeptical because you think I'm like the salesman trying to sell you church or sell you religion, and you're skeptical, and you're thinking, do I really believe that this happened? And to be honest with you, if you've been around church long enough, you've experienced this. We do something as a church that does this a disservice. We say things like, well, you just got to believe. You just got to believe. As a way of saying, I know there's no evidence. I know there's no, like, reliable sources, but just believe. Almost like, you know, almost like we do with a, with a fairy tale, with, you know, today, Easter Bunny or Tooth Fairy or all those things, it's like if you believe it, then it's, you know, the believing in it almost is what makes it true. And so we've done that as a church. We say, just believe. Just believe. If you may have heard it, you know, when you had questions as a teenager or maybe when you were in college and all of a sudden you had these questions about faith and somebody came to you and says, don't ask questions, just believe. Well, that works for a while, right? But it goes really against everything else that we weigh whether or not it's something credible, do I want to buy this vacuum? Well, let's look at the source. Let's look at the evidence. And so as a church, we've done the gospel a disservice when we say, don't worry about just believe, just have faith. I want to point this out, that the disciples who wrote these gospels, they did not believe just because they wanted to have faith. They did not believe out of faith. They all wrote this down and believed because of what they saw, what they witnessed, what they heard Jesus say. So if you are in the skeptical maybe cynical category today, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're here. I get it. I understand why you're here. And maybe you grew up with a faith in Jesus because you were told the story and you were told to just believe. But as you got older, that faith didn't add up. You had questions. It didn't make sense. So maybe you walked away from a faith that you had when you were younger. And you stopped believing in Jesus because you outgrew the fairy tale faith right? Just like you outgrew believing in the Easter Bunny, or the Tooth Fairy, or the Queen of England. You know, the... <laughs> that's a, 
thought at least my kids would laugh. That's a, that's a movie quote. That's a, deep, that's a deep dive for an inside joke. If you're in this category, I'm glad you're here. Maybe you're here today just because it was Easter and your family said, you, it's Easter, and if you're visiting me, if you're home from college and you're home and you're visiting mom and dad, they said it's Easter and you're getting to church. If you want any sort of food or treats today, you're going to church. And you might be skeptical or cynical. I'm glad you're here because I want to look again at these Gospels. The Gospel accounts of a resurrected Jesus that were not just writing stories. They were not just literature based on good feelings or fairy tales or blind faith. They weren't trying to sell anything to anybody. These gospel writers simply said, I've seen these things, and that's caused me to believe. I've seen these, and I've written it down so that those who would come after me and who, write, who read these things would see it and believe. There's a story in the Gospel of John that we're going to spend the rest of our time in today. The Gospel of John, in, actually in John chapter 20, the disciple John who was a disciple of Jesus all through his ministry. It's almost like he, at the end of the gospel in John 20, he writes an account of the empty tomb, and then he says some words in John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. And I wanted to read these. It's almost like at the end of the gospel, John then said, I'm giving you the reason why I'm writing all of this down. You know, if you're in college or in high school or something, you have to write a research paper you have a thesis statement. Have you ever heard of that? Yes, we've heard of that. And typically we put that at the beginning. The reason I'm writing this paper, here's what I hope to accomplish, we put that at the beginning. But it's almost like the apostle or the disciple John wrote this at the end of his gospel in John chapter 20. And I want to read, this is right after his account of the resurrection and the empty tomb. It says this in John 20 verse 31. John says this, Jesus performed, can we have, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. Actually, John went on to say, if I were to try to write down everything Jesus did, no book could really contain it. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John comes right out. This would have been written near the end of John's life, maybe about 30 or 40 years after Jesus rose from the dead. He decided to write down everything that he saw Jesus do. But he says here, I've picked these things to write down, and here's the reason I'm writing it, so that anybody who comes after and reads this, and that includes us today. John may not have realized that 2,000 years later we'd be quoting the words that he wrote down on that day. But John makes it very clear, I'm writing all of these down because this is what I've seen, and this is what has caused me to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And I'm writing it down so that you would read it, and that you would trust this source as an eyewitness, that you would have faith in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, that there is life and mercy and forgiveness to be found in his name. And that's why we're here today, because John wrote these down, because Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote these down, because there was an empty tomb, because there was Jesus who did all these miracles, because of the resurrection of the dead, we are here today, and we have hope, not just for this life, but for eternity. We're reading from these words that were an eyewitness to all the things that Jesus did and said. And we're doing that today because I, like the disciple John, I'm hoping that you would see enough that you would hear enough from this word of God that you would have faith in Jesus Christ, that he did rise from the dead, that he is the author of life and forgiveness. That's why we're here today. It is more than a story.
Because this story is an event, and this event can change your eternity. So I want to look at one other story in the minutes we have left. Early on in this uh, Gospel of John, if you would, if you have a Bible, and they'll be up on the screen if you don't, John chapter 5. This is pretty early on in Jesus' ministry. Again, another story that John decided to write down because he said, I saw this, and this was enough. This was one of those signs. This is one of those evidences that made me believe that Jesus is who he says he is. John chapter 5. I'm going to start reading at verse 1. And this is the healing at the pool. If your Bible has like the little subtitles, the healing at the pool. So I want to start reading this story and then tie it into our Easter theme for today. Verse 1 of John chapter 5 says this. Sometime later... Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and some translations call it Bethsaida. So either one is the same thing. Uh, In Aramaic is called Bethesda, which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. Okay, so we're going to stop there just for a second. So John's giving the details of this story. First of all, he's giving the details of the, you know, the city of Jerusalem had the gates around it, and there was a gate called the Sheep Gate. And just outside of that, there's the pool in Aramaic called Bethesda. He's giving these details as a way of saying, you can fact check this. This is a real place. This is a real event. And archaeologists in the early 1900s actually uncovered this spot. It was interesting when archaeologists first found it, They found the sheep gate, and they found what looked like an area around there, but they didn't find a pool or any five covered colonnades. And they looked at that as reason to believe that the Bible was inaccurate, that John was mistaken, that we shouldn't believe the Bible, because if John had said there was these five covered colonnades in this pool, we would have found it. So in the early 1900s, this was kind of like a a moment where people were questioning the Scripture. But fortunately, the archaeologists kept digging. And as they dug further down, they discovered, oh, There's a pool here. Oh, here's the five areas that John was referring to. It is exactly like John described. Now, he gives those details, but then he goes on to give the details of what that pool meant. And archaeologists discovered, you know, that this pool actually was tapped into an underground stream, uh, underground spring, so to speak. So the pool would kind of, you know, it would fill itself out. They tapped into this spring, and it filled up with water. And what would happen was, and the legend was this, that at this pool, an angel would come every once in a while and stir the waters. And we don't know what that meant. It could be that that underground spring would cause the waters to bubble up or to stir or whatever it was. And the understanding was this, that when that happened, that was a sign that God was going to heal somebody. And the first person to get into the pool would be healed. That was the understanding. That was the legend. So imagine this scene where Jesus goes here, and around this pool is all the sick, the lame, the handicapped, the crippled, the injured, those who are leprosy, every disease. In that day and age, in that culture, if you had a doctor, you were one of the wealthy, privileged people. For most of the people, if you were sick, your only hope was the gods or some sort of legend like this. And there was this understanding. And so um, that the, if you got into the pool first, as the water was stirred, you would be healed. So imagine that scene, just the chaos. Because first of all, you have surrounding this pool every kind of disease and sickness. 
Every kind of handicap, injury. I'm sure that there were times where officials or people would have to go in and remove the dead bodies because these were people who were there waiting for their moment. They would watch. Imagine the hopelessness in that situation of day after day watching for the water to stir. This is the scene that Jesus sets up. And so Jesus shows up there. Imagine the chaos of those moments when the water was stirred and everybody, you know, frantically, the injured, the the handicapped, trying to get into the water. Imagine everybody feeling again and again, I missed my chance, I missed my chance. These are the details that Jesus sets up. We're going to continue the story in verse 5. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and leaned or and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, Do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone goes down ahead of me. So here's this guy. First of all, we have to recognize Jesus willingly went to this place. This would have been a place that nobody healthy would have gone anywhere near because this is like, you know, sickness personified, disease personified. Jesus intentionally goes to this place, finds this man, learns that he has been there for 38 years, 38 years every day waiting for a chance to get into that pool to get rid of this handicap that he has. 38 years. He can't get there on his own, so that means somebody has brought him there every day for 38 years, and Jesus leans in. And he asks a question that when you read it, you're like, well, that's a silly question, Jesus. Do you want to get well? The reason why he's there is because he wants to get well. Jesus learns that he's been there for 38 years. And then he leans in and he says, do you want to get well? Of course he does, we think. But Jesus knows what he's doing when he asks this question. Because many times, whether it's a physical ailment or maybe it's something else, something deeper in us, many times people don't really want to get well. Many times people are content in their ailment or they've just gotten used to it. Maybe there's something that is affecting you or I today and we know the things that would make us well, but yet we're like, ah, but it's not so bad. I don't really want to take those steps. I don't want to, I know the thing that is making me unwell. I know the habit that is making me unwell. I know the sin I know the addiction. I know the relationship that I'm in that is making me unwell or the pattern of thinking. We know it so many times, but yet we refuse in our own lives to take the necessary steps to get well, to do the work, to discipline ourselves, to to be disciplined in breaking a habit or putting a boundary up in a relationship or whatever it is. So when Jesus asks him, it's like he's asking us today, do you want to get well? Or are you one of those that are just, you've gotten used to your sickness, you've gotten used to whatever it is that is ailing you, and you're comfortable with it? So Jesus lets him know, you have to want this. It's your decision. And of course, the man responds. Of course, he says, yes, I want to get well, but he thinks he knows the solution is to get in the water. He doesn't recognize, why would he, that Jesus, the author of life, is really the answer to his prayers. But he thinks he knows, I just got to get into the water. But he tells Jesus the heartbreaking story. Every time I go, because I am crippled and handicapped, I can't make it into the water faster than some of these other people. Every time the water is stirred, someone gets in ahead of me. He thinks he knows the answer. 
but yet he recognizes he is powerless to do it. It's like he sees life and healing and restoration right there, but he's powerless to get there. It's an amazing story. Continues on in verse 8. Then Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and he walked. What a moment that must have been. But that phrase, get up, there's other times, if you look at the original Greek language, it's sometimes translated that same word as wake up or even rise up. It's like Jesus is saying, get up, take a step, get up. And the man is healed. Imagine that scene, 38 years. Maybe someone in the room today is 38 years old. Imagine that whole span of your life being at that pool, wanting healing, wanting to be made well. And now all of a sudden Jesus comes and he simply just says, get up. And you are cured and you begin to walk. Here's why that story fits today in the few minutes I have left. Here's why that story fits with an Easter message today. Because that story really represents the gospel message of salvation. It really does. If we translate that story to our day and age, we, you and me, are that guy who is sick. And our sickness is sin. Our sickness separates us from God. We are lost. We are spiritually blind. And we are cursed in sin. And like the man at the pool, we can't do anything about it. We can't do anything about it. And there are so many times where we think we know what we need to get well. Just like this guy at the pool, we think we know what's going what's gonna to save us is if I could just get into that water, translate it to today's world, we think we know we're like the guy at the pool. We're like, if I could just get there, if I could just succeed in this, if I could just find contentment or happiness in a relationship, and so it's a pattern of dating after dating after dating and people that, and relationships that just kind of feed that unhealthiness. We think if I could just find validation in a relationship or in success or in money, if I could just find happiness, if I could just be a good enough person, if I could just get in that pool... I would be made well, but that's not how it works. We can't help ourselves. We're like that man at the pool. We can't get there on our own. There is a total sense of hopelessness when we are talking about mankind and sin and our separation from God. There's a futility that comes when we are trying to save ourselves. And Jesus, as he has done for many of us here who have received the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ and forgiveness, Jesus comes to each of us in that moment when we are mired in our sin. And he says, do you want to get well? Do you want to get well? Or are you fine in this pattern of sin? Are you fine in this addiction? Are you fine in trying to search for validation and approval in other people? Or do you want to get to the root of the problem and do you want to get well? There's a, an interesting dichotomy between the sovereignty of God and the will of man. We can't save ourselves, but God isn't going to force us to be saved. It is still a decision we make. Jesus comes to us. He's not going to force us in. And he comes and he says, do you want to get well? And then he says to each of us, and maybe this is your word for today, that you have been wandering from God, you have never received salvation in Jesus Christ, or maybe you had a faith as a child, but it was like a fairy tale, and you gave it up once you got old enough. Well, today Jesus is saying, do you want to get well? Do you want to get well? Then rise up, then get up, then follow me, Jesus says. Receive salvation. Just receive it. That is our way 
of getting up. That is our way of accepting this. We just receive it. Receive it. John the disciple wrote this event down in his gospel. Just like he wrote down the account of the resurrection, that there was a day that he went to the tomb and Jesus wasn't there. John wrote these down because he wanted those who would read it. That's you and me. He wanted those who would read it to see enough so that they would believe that Jesus is Lord and there is life in his name. He said that I'm writing this down so that you would read it and you would believe that Jesus is Lord and that there is life in his name. So today and this weekend we celebrate a cross that Jesus died on for us. And we celebrate an empty tomb that he was victorious and he rose. Amen? That he rose from the dead conquering sin and death. And we celebrate an event of a man who had been sick and handicapped for 38 years and was healed and walked away that day. So these are all written down by a guy who saw it all. He saw all these things, and he wrote them down so that you and I would have an opportunity to believe, to put our faith in Jesus, not just out of a, oh, just believe, but to put our faith in him based on what we read in this reliable source. When Jesus died, the the message of the gospel is this, when Jesus died on the cross, that sin penalty that we have, that sin that we have that we can't get rid of, it's forgiven, it's washed away. And not only that, But then God looks at us, and the righteousness of Jesus is bestowed on us. I want you to get that today. The righteousness that Jesus had is bestowed on us when we are in Christ. So when God looks at us, he doesn't see sin. He doesn't see addiction. He doesn't see failure. He doesn't see all the times we've messed up. He just sees the righteousness of Jesus on you and me. So all of these things John wrote down, all of these stories, are these enough today for you to put your faith in Jesus? If he died for you and he rose again, is that enough for you to believe? Not just a story, but an event that has an impact on your life, that is the one thing that can save you out of your sin and bring you into a right relationship with God. Is that enough for you to believe? And if you are here today in the camp of you are skeptical or cynical or you don't believe yet, I want you to know you're surrounded by a lot of people that we've experienced this, that we've looked at and said, yep, I've read enough. I know Jesus Christ is the Lord, that he is Savior. If you are here today and you have found life in Jesus Christ, would you just put your hand up for a second? If you have found life in Jesus Christ, these are all people, if you are cynical, these are all people who would say, yep, I've read it, I've seen it, I believe it. I believe it's not just a story, it's an event. He is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. There is life in his name.